This is the National Intel Report. I'm your host, John Statmiller, with you on this Friday, folks. 15th day of December 2017. I've got uh, P.J. Barton coming up in about 15 minutes. We're going to talk about this Brexit. Seems the people of London and England won it, and now there's games being played. And we'll get into all that. I've been wanting to talk to P.J. I was hoping I had the opportunity to call in yesterday. But he texted me today, and he'll be with us in about 15 minutes. Uh, This thing is blowing up badly. Go figure. Um, Crypto, the end of freedom. This alludes, this presentation alludes to the dangers of the cryptocurrencies. And I think it uh, is worth the listen. There is one simple rule to follow when understanding the tragic history of economics. Never put blind faith in a system built on an establishment-created foundation. You would think this would not be a difficult concept to grasp, being that we have so many examples of controlled economics and collapse to reference over the centuries, but in our era, more than ever, the allure of a virtual world with promises of endless wealth and ease is overwhelming. Yes, I'm referring primarily to cryptocurrency, tulip mania, but not this issue alone. I am also referring to a far-reaching problem of which cryptocurrencies are a mere reflection, namely the fact that humanity is swiftly losing sight of what a true economy is and what it is supposed to accomplish. It is because of this reality that crypto is thriving. First, let's be clear. Fiat currencies are one of the first machinations of the virtual economy. Once paper currencies printed from thin air by central bankers were separated from tangible backing and accepted by the masses as valuable and worth trading labor for, the seed of financial cancer was planted. Today, there is one final step needed for the establishment to accomplish complete tyranny in global trade, and that 
is to disconnect the masses fully from private transactions. In other words, we must be tricked into going digital, where privacy is an absurd memory. Virtual economics is appealing for several reasons, most of them bad. Americans and much of the West in particular are increasingly uncomfortable with the idea of real production. The latest generation coming into political and social influence, the millennials, is a perfect example. Surveys show American millennials more than any other generation lack basic workplace competency skills, including scoring low on arithmetic and reading comprehension. Often portrayed as tech-savvy in popular culture and the media, millennials are quite inept when it comes to core skills that fuel strong business and trade, which is part of the reason why the U.S. is falling into the shadow of foreign workforces. Millennials in the West also exhibit abysmal technical skills in international testing and lag far behind foreign peers. This has come as a surprise to many mainstream economists and social analysts, primarily because millennials are also considered the most educated generation ever. But, of course, we have not only been given a virtual economy in recent decades, but also a virtual education system. A majority of millennials are lacking when it comes to key production skills and entrepreneurship methods because they have been trained to dismiss such skills as negligible. In other words, millennials have been conditioned to be academic idiots. Why go through the struggle and hardship required to become an effective producer of tangible necessities when it is far easier to join a collectivist drive for socialism and a structure in which little or no work is required to obtain such necessities? Why not steal from a productive minority and spread it thinly enough to keep the unskilled majority fed? It is only within this kind of culture that virtual production, a virtual society, and virtual money is seen as an ideal solution. The notion is becoming more and more prevalent in our popular media, and I believe this is rather symbolic or ironic of our conundrum. For example, consider the book Ready Player One a pop culture craze and archetypal zeitgeist for millennials soon to be released as an intended Hollywood blockbuster directed by Steven Spielberg. The novel depicts the world of 2045, a world in which fossil fuel depletion and global warming have triggered economic and social decline. Remember, in the 1980s, when they used to tell us about global warming, which was going to melt the polar ice caps and we'd be under the water by the year 2000, a totalitarian governing body controlled by corporate behemoths rules over the dystopian sprawl. In response to an ever-painful existence in the real world, the masses have sought to escape to a virtual world called the Oasis, created by a programming genius. The Oasis becomes a nexus for the global economy and a virtual society. This sounds like a rousing background for a story of rebellion, and it is about that sort of. Unfortunately, here is where the disturbing ties between our world and the fictional world of Ready Player One meet. The rebellion is for all intents and purposes also virtual, and for millennial audiences in particular, this is supposed to be inspiring. Perhaps this is why cryptocurrencies are so appealing to the millennial crowd in particular. Think about it. The dismal economic doldrums of Ready Player One exist now. 
we don't have to wait until 2045. Millennials are already feeling disaffected, indebted, and disenfranchised, and most of them are also skillless. Self-reliance to them is an idea so alien, it rarely, if ever, crosses their minds. So how do they fight back? Or how are they tricked into thinking they can fight back against a virtual system that has left them in the gutter? Why? With a virtual community and a virtual currency, of course. Millennials and others think that they're going to rebel and take down the banking oligarchs with nothing more than digital markers representing coins tracked on a digital ledger created by an anonymous genius programmer or programmers. Delusional? Yes. But like I said earlier, it is an appealing notion. Here's the issue, though. True money requires intrinsic value. Cryptocurrencies have no intrinsic value. They are conjured from nothing but programmers. They are mined in a virtual mine created from nothing, and they have no unique aspects that make them rare or tangibly useful. They are an easily replicated digital product. Anyone can create a cryptocurrency. And for those that argue that math gives crypto intrinsic value, I'm sorry to break it to them, but the math is free. In fact, for those that are not already aware, Bitcoin uses the SHA-256 hash function created by none other than the National Security Agency, or the NSA, and published by the National Institute for Standards and Technology, or NIST. Yes, that's right. Bitcoin would not exist without the foundation built by the NSA. Not only this, but the entire concept for a system remarkably similar to Bitcoin was published by the NSA way back in 1996 in a paper called How to Make Commit, the Cryptography of Anonymous Electronic Cash. The origins of Bitcoin and thus the origins of cryptocurrencies and the blockchain ledger suggest anything other than a legitimate rebellion against the establishment framework and international financiers. I often cite the same problem when people come to me with arguments that the Internet has set the stage for the collapse of the globalist information filter and the mainstream media. The truth is, the Internet is also an establishment creation developed by DARPA. And as Edward Snowden exposed in his data dumps, the NSA has total information awareness and backdoor control over every aspect of web data. Many people believe the free flow of information on the Internet is a weapon in favor of the liberty movement, but it is also a weapon in favor of the establishment. With a macro overview of data flows, entities like Google can even predict future social trends and instabilities, not to mention a peek into every personal detail of an individual's life and past. To summarize, cryptocurrencies are built upon an establishment-designed framework, and they are entirely dependent on an establishment-created and controlled vehicle, the Internet, in order to function and perpetuate trade. How exactly is this decentralization again? Total information awareness is the goal here. And blockchain technology helps the powers that be remove one of the last obstacles. Private personal trade transactions. Years ago, a common argument presented in favor of Bitcoin was that it was completely anonymous. Today, this is being proven more and more a lie. 
Even now, in the wake of open admissions by major Bitcoin proponents that the system is not anonymous, people still claim anonymity is possible through various measures. But this has not proven to sway the FBI or IRS, which have for years now been using resources such as chain analysis to track Bitcoin users when they feel like doing so, including those users that have taken stringent measures to hide themselves. Bitcoin proponents will argue that new developments and even new cryptocurrencies are solving this problem. Yet, this was the mantra back when Bitcoin was first hitting the alternative media. It wasn't a trustworthy assumption back then, so why would it be a trustworthy assumption now? The only proper assumption to make is that nothing digital is anonymous. Period. With the ludicrous spike in Bitcoin prices, champions of the virtual economy are unlikely to listen to any questions or criticisms. I have never argued one way or the other in terms of Bitcoin's potential market value because it does not really matter. I've only ever argued that cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin are in no way a solution to combating the international and central banks. In fact, cryptocurrencies only seem to be expediting their plan for full-spectrum digitization and the issuance of a global currency system. Bitcoin could easily hit $100,000, but its value is truly irrelevant and consistently hyped as if it makes Bitcoin self-evident as a solution to globalism. The higher the Bitcoin price goes, the more the Bitcoin cult claims victory. Yet the lack of intrinsic value never seems to cross their minds. Ask yourself this. Why is it that central banks around the world, including the BIS and IMF, are investing in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies while developing their own crypto systems based on a similar framework? Could it be that this infusion of capital and infrastructure from major banks is the most likely explanation for the incredible spike in the Bitcoin market? Why is it that globalist banking conglomerates like Goldman Sachs lavish blockchain technology with praise in their white papers? And why are central bankers like Ben Bernanke speaking in favor of crypto at major cryptocurrency conferences if crypto is such a threat to central bank control? Answer, because it is not a threat. They benefit from a cashless system and liberty champions are helping to give it to them. Above all else, the virtual economy breeds weakness in society. It encourages a lack of tangible production. Instead of true producers, entrepreneurs and inventors, we have people scrambling to sell real-world property in order to buy computer rigs capable of mining coins that do not really exist. That is to say, we may one day soon be faced with millions of citizens expending their labor and energy in order to obtain digital nothings programmed into existence and given artificial scarcity. It also encourages false rebellion. Real change requires actions in the real world, removing banking elitists and their structures by force if necessary, and this will probably be necessary. Instead, freedom activists are being convinced that they will never have to lift a finger to beat the bankers. All they have to do is buy and mine crypto. The day will come in the near future when the folks that embrace this nonsense will wake up and realize they've wasted their energies chasing a unicorn and are ill-prepared to weather the economic reset that continues to evolve. To maintain a real economy in which people are self-reliant and safe from fiscal shock, you need three things. Tangible, localized, and decentralized production. 
independent and decentralized trade networks that are not structured around an establishment control system like the internet is controlled and the will to apply force to protect and preserve that production and those networks. If you cannot manufacture a useful thing, repair a useful thing, or teach a useful skill, then you are essentially useless in a real economy. If you do not have localized trade, you have nothing. If you do not have the mindset and the community of independent people required to protect your local production, then you will not be able to keep the economy you have built. This is the cold, hard truth that crypto proponents do not want to discuss and will dismiss outright as archaic or non-obtainable. The virtual economy is so much easier, so much more comfortable. Why risk anything or everything in a real-world effort to build a concrete trade network in your own neighborhood or town? Why risk everything by promoting true decentralization through localized commodity-backed money and barter systems? Why risk everything by defending those systems when the establishment seeks to crush them? Why do this when you can pretend you are a virtual hero, wielding a virtual weapon in a no-risk rebellion in a world of electronic ones and zeros? In truth, the virtual economy is not legitimate decentralization. It is a weapon of mass distraction, engineered to kill legitimate decentralization. <laughs> there is one simple rule to follow when... Okay, once is enough. <laughs> I, you know, I guess a drowning man will try to grab onto anything after the ship is sunk. <laughs> you're 3,000 miles from any, any land whatsoever and you're hanging on to a piece of driftwood. Yeah, and it's true. I mean, look how many people have bid into this. Yeah, isn't this great? Look how much money I've made. Well, it's not necessarily can be described as a pyramid scam, but it's one that if people quit buying Bitcoin, uh, its supposed value would decrease. And like anything else, if we, as as this video explains, if you're not in the real world, then you're in the virtual, with your thoughts, your imaginations, uh, your you know your best wishes and hopes built on what sandcastles in the sky. This is dangerous, and you know people that are desperate. Let's put it that way will latch on to anything that promises hope or a way out of where they're at. Uh, I give you Donald Trump. Politically, he's going to drain the swamp. And then after careful examination, looking at Mr. Trump and what he's gathered around him, how many real policies have changed, it's not that different. And it's easy to pick on Obongo. He was an easy guy to pick on. This was a... You want to talk about a virtual president? <laughs> he, was, he was exactly that. This guy had no, leader, no leadership skills. Uh, he could read a script. He could orate. But his thoughts were not his own. Never notice when these guys get off script, and I don't care if it was George Bush or Obama or any of them. Seems kind of disassociated and kind of janky. That's their minds at work. 
Do we have PJ? Okay, we'll bring PJ on right after this break. Find out what's going on with Brexit. It was supposed to be the will of the people, and it was a done deal. Or was it? Here at Republic Broadcasting Network, we have been building our online store. Well, we have been focusing on bringing you the best talk show host in the country. Here at Republic Broadcasting Network, we also want our listeners to have products they can use every day and in times of emergency. We have added new products each week to our store. Your support of this network, plus products at the best prices, is a win-win situation. Check out our new store. Go to our website, republicbroadcasting.org, and click on the online store located at the top of our website. Together, we can continue to grow RBN and help our listeners prepare for the future. Go to republicbroadcasting.org and click on our online store or call us. 800-724-2719, extension 3. 800-724-2719, extension 3. My name is John. I'm the founder of Blackout Coffee, and I started uh, Blackout because I really love coffee. I've always loved coffee, and after traveling so much to Europe, South America, and trying so many different coffees that were so good, and uh, every time I came back, uh, to the U.S., I was so disappointed with the coffee, so I figured that I had to do something about it. The biggest difference is really is on the beans and the roasting process, how we roast it, and how fresh it is. The fresher the roast, the better the quality. Here I have like all, all of the coffee. It's roasted within one to two days prior to being shipped. So it literally gets to consumers' house within three to five days after being roasted. If you like coffee... You have to try ours. It's fresh roasted. It's one of the best beans that we can get. And you will definitely see the difference. Visit blackoutcoffee.com and use the coupon code REPUB10. That's REPUB10. Here at Republic Broadcasting Network, we have been building our online store. Well, we have been focusing on bringing you the best talk show host in the country, Here at Republic Broadcasting Network, we also want our listeners to have products they can use every day and in times of emergency. We have added new products each week to our store. Your support of this network, plus products at the best prices, is a win-win situation. Check out our new store. Go to our website, republicbroadcasting.org, and click on the online store located at the top of our website. Together, we can continue to grow RBN and help our listeners prepare for the future. Go to republicbroadcasting.org and click on our online store or call us. 800-724-2719, extension 3. 800-724-2719, extension 3. We are back. This is kind of unnerving. When I would talk to P.J. Barton before, at least his sun was shining here in Texas. Now I'm afeard that we're just as in the dark as good old whales. How you doing, P.J.? Good evening. Very good, very good. Well, we're shoveling snow here for three days, but that's unusual. Like We had no snow for seven years, but uh, the U.K. goes into a paralysis if we get two inches of snow, but we got 12 inches of snow this time. <laughs> so uh, that's where I was.
was when you sent me that, uh, or Mike sent me that Skype message. I was outside. But um, no, we got a real winter this year, which is good, really, you know, for the killing all the bugs, etc. So um, we have something other than friggin' Brexit to talk about here. The weather, the weather. The eternal subject in Britain is the weather. Although it's fairly predictable, it's usually bad, you know? Well, it's something, well, it's like anything else. You can always talk about something you can't do a damn thing about. Well, I don't talk about sport. I have no interest in sport, you know. Soccer <laughs> being the predominant thing here is to shove down your throat at every level. Yeah, they, they, um, they, tried, they tried to make America turn everybody into soccer moms, and I don't think it quite worked. Uh, we're we're hooked no, on well, we're hooked on our spheroid uh, uh, ball I, here. Yes, it's called football. Yeah. It the anyway, only North game I have a respect for is hockey. Huh? Yeah, but we don't have that. Haven't got the ice. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say uh, you made some uh, some uh, notes here, and uh-huh. I didn't I didn't realize this has been a year and a half since they voted which they said that, uh, well, this vote on Brexit, uh, you know, we're going to stay in the EU. Well, it was a close vote, 52 to 48. 52 says let's go, and 48 said let's remain, even though that their economy was crumbling, and they were getting a raw deal from the EU, total control over the, the economy in the UK. And now, in the last couple of weeks, I saw that there's got to be a payoff of, what, $50 billion to the EU? Theresa, well, if yeah, forty forty billion pounds, but it'll keep increasing. You know. Well, what's the supposed payoff for? Well, you see, this is a disgraceful thing. No, no other countries in the world, a group of countries, have paid a fee or a, a backhand or a bribe to agree a trade deal. It's never happened. But Britain has commitments with the European Union until one year after twenty nineteen in terms of the current budget. So it, it's that. But they were initially looking at for a hundred billion. A <laughs> hundred billion. These bunch are running this unaccounted, unrequested organization called the EU. But, um, it, uh, you know, you've, you, you've profiled Juncker and these people many times. But the statistics of what we're working against here, uh, I put them in there, 90% of the Labour Party are Remainers, but 60% of their voters are Brexiteers. You look at that, there's just three or four, you see them there, uh, contra- well, bizarre statistics. Of the Conservative Party, you'd imagine they'd be 100% uh, Brexiteers. 60% of the Conservative Party MPs are Remainers. 80% of their voters are Brexiteers, right? You, know, you see the, the, the disconnect there? And more, more than half of Theresa May's cabinet are Remainers. Well, it's not necessarily a disconnect. I mean, if you, and I'm assuming here that the Labour Party is, um, um, that the version of that here would be the Democrats, and, oh, yeah, absolutely. and the um, uh, the conservative, uh, and we have our own problems with so-called conservatives in this country that don't play by the rule book, and we have this little thing called a constitution that they promptly ignore, and the majority of what is in that constitution, ironically, PJ, is uh, to cure the ills of present day. And nobody has seemed to have noticed. So we have our neocons. They want to go blow up uh, what's left of the world. And uh, and to do it righteously, we're in 144 countries right now operating our military and covert operations. And somehow this is designed to keep the world safe. Now, having said that, uh, yeah, our our politics are just about the same as yours. It is, yeah, and, and, and the failure of them. We've got a much more aggressive media here that has feet on the ground. It, things are debated. 
but the, it's not as bad as total wipeout of denial of the, of the mainstream media of the facts. But uh, the one thing they do lie about here for 20 or 30 years, they're not, not, like, not able to do it now because the facts are being laid before them on the news bulletins about the negotiation of Brexit. They never really covered the European Union. It was eating away at us like a bloody rat, you know, eating cheese uh, with legislation that was crippling uh, small business and everything else here. But they're now have, that's one good thing about Brexit, although people are getting sick of the word, you know. That's going to go on for another two years. And um, as I said in the two, wrote on the journalist, three thundering bitches in the BBC who have senior positions, Emily Makeless, who, who does news, Newsnight, Laura Coonsberg, who's the chief political correspondent, and Joe Coburn, they are barely concealed rabbit remainers, you know, and they should be kicked off the air. But... Um, And and again, okay, so now you're media. (laughs) You know, I mean, is anybody catching the irony here? Your politics are structured about the same. Your media is structured just about the same. And we end up with the same result. Hey, that's not an accident. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I often meant to ask you, can you click in and watch the BBC uh, Newsnight programs on your TV at home? Um, yeah, um, but they really don't give you a schedule, and if you try to watch it online, you're blocked. Yeah, yeah, that's the deal. Yeah, the, the BBC iPlayer is blocked abroad. But on your satellite, can you pick up the BBC? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, Newsnight is pretty good. It's the, good, it's the general 45 minutes, no ads, of what's going on in Britain and the world, and etc. So sometimes it's very good. And Panorama, there's still some outstanding pros. The BBC, you have to say that. I'm not, not contradicting myself. There's an element of editorial policy that's pro the EU, pro the Euro. Well, that's, that's, to satiate, that's to satiate some people that are watching that still consider them to be conservatives uh, in the British swamp. Hold on, PG. I've oh, got yeah. to take a break here. We'll be right back. You are tuned in to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Visit our website by going to republicbroadcasting.org. Here's some interesting news. Due to all the recent claims about possible nuclear wars, viruses, solar flares, and civil unrest, people are scrambling to prepare and stockpile food. But the one thing out of reach for many is an underground bunker. Until now. Because you can now have a 3D printed underground bunker in just one day. An excavator digs a hole in your backyard, and 3dbunkers.com shows up in a small truck and sets up their 3D printer under a tent completely undetected. They can print as many rooms as you want at a fraction of the cost compared to traditional metal bunkers. 3D Bunkers uses polymer concrete, which is five times stronger than regular cement. YouTube 3DBunkers.com and watch the video. The creators of 3D Bunkers is looking for a business partner that can help bring this technology to the world. And we need to protect our way of life without living in fear. Contact Brad at 3DBunkers.com for more details or visit 3DBunkers.com. People often write to tell us what has happened for them since starting Extendivite. Allow me to read a few highlights. Extendivite works in keeping my blood pressure in the normal range. I have been using Extendivite for many years. Great product. I use regularly and I rarely get sick. This product has relieved what appeared to be angina pain in my chest and shortness of breath after climbing stairs. I'm quite happy about it. My husband, son, and I have been using this product for a few months now, and we have noticed an improvement in our joints and blood pressure. To order, call one 877 
928-8822 or visit extendivite.com. That's X-T-E-N-D-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Extend your life with Extendovite. Here's some interesting news. Due to all the recent claims about possible nuclear wars, viruses, solar flares, and civil unrest, people are scrambling to prepare and stockpile food. But the one thing out of reach for many is an underground bunker. Until now. Because you can now have a 3D printed underground bunker in just one day. An excavator digs a hole in your backyard, and 3dbunkers.com shows up in a small truck and sets up their 3D printer under a tent completely undetected. They can print as many rooms as you want at a fraction of the cost compared to traditional metal bunkers. 3D Bunkers uses polymer concrete, which is five times stronger than regular cement. YouTube 3DBunkers.com and watch the video. The creators of 3D Bunkers is looking for a business partner that can help bring this technology to the world. And we need to protect our way of life without living in fear. Contact Brad at 3DBunkers.com for more details or visit 3DBunkers.com. So now we have uh, rush negotiations, and the uh, the Brexit secretary David Davis. Uh, these negotiations, I, I mean. Uh, PJ, I, I don't understand what is going on with this. The voters voted to get out of Brexit. Theresa May was a supporter of it. She figured she had a, a lot more, a lot more, a lot more support than she did, and evidently it was not so. She panicked, called a, uh, a snap general election last June, and here she stands. With her knickers down around her knees, very politically weak, and she lost a lot of seats. Uh, she thought she could annihilate the Labour Party. She believed the polls that she was twenty percent ahead, but that was not the case on the ground. And every government around the world, briefly over the last thirty years, who call a snap election for self gain, gets kicked, and they got kicked this time, even though the majority are in favour of Brexit. But um, one of the things that's stymieing David Davis. He's a very affable guy, but he's an appeaser. He's not a negotiator. One of the key things, Cameron gave no instruction 18 months ago before, two, three years ago now, 18 months before the referendum was held. The date was pretty well known. And the British Secret Service, Civil Service did no preparations for the possibility of Brexit. That's what the Civil Service is for. But that's the disgrace the way Cameron was running things. Well, and, and, and the people that are... It's like federal workers, the biggest employer in this country, in the United States is the federal government and all of its agencies, all the contracts and subcontracts that go out. And mm-hmm. it's kind of the same in uh, in the U.K. because 80% of these government people, people that are making their livelihood either directly or indirectly from the government, 80% of them are what you guys are now calling remainders. You know, that's, that, that's, uh, that's obviously self-serving. I don't. What, do they do they fear that they're going to actually have to go get a real job, or wh- wh- what is uh, what is the deal with them? That eighty percent of them say I'll that. Tell you. Go, yeah. go ahead. The subject is uh, that uh, 
a lot of these civil servants' uh, daughters probably hope to get jobs in the European Union, which are highly paid. And also the civil service in Britain is now 10 or 15% ahead of the private sector in wages. The private sector, people here, are, are wages are, are 2008 level. Your earnings here is way down. Unemployment is way down. There's only 5% genuinely, genuinely only 5% unemployment here, even with the mass immigration. Like Britain is a pretty durable economy, and it's one of the best in Europe with Ireland. Ireland is the fastest growing economy in Ireland currently, believe it or not, having come out of bankruptcy. But uh, the, um, the um, wages are down, uh, but low-grade, low-priced jobs are in. That's, that's the problem. Uh, the real real learning power is down. Well, and and I find it uh, kind of ironic. Where did that five percent unemployment number come from? Are those from government statistics? Oh no! In Britain, you can't lie by statistics. The government is statistics, but they're cross-checked by numerous agencies, and uh, it's it's quite a compact country. This, and uh, but what we have is about I would think about thirty percent of jobs now, as opposed to about five ten percent before, are low page or part time jobs. Like we just the same some phenomenon as, as in America, but um, it's that that is the real problem: low wages and etc. But and the other the scandal is um, this clock. Um, Philip Hammond, the Treasury Secretary, who's kind of a manic depressive, boring, back depressing git. He has not gone after the multinationals like um, the EU has, by the way, for not paying tax, like Amazon and uh, this Uber scandal in London. That's another thing going on: these Uber taxis, right? But 40,000 of them in London, and they're just about to be put out of business now because uh, they're not paying their drivers enough, and they're not paying uh, tax here. So uh, why they were given licenses in the first place, because London taxis are the best in the world, you know, the black taxis. They're very highly trained guys, and they're very reliable, and they're very safe. But this Uber thing, which is this virtual world, like you were talking about, that, that guy voicing over the thing there. What was the name of that guy in the first 15 minutes of your program talking about cryptocurrencies? Uh, what was the name of that, Mike? What was that video? Crypto, crypto, the end of freedom. Hope you have that on, on the website. I'll get a copy of it. The, oh, yeah, it is. And it, it's a virtual world. And as, as the other thing you said very accurately, I'd be going on about it. We've got these academic idiots with 30,000 pounds worth of debt with a useless job, with a useless degree. <laughs> I mean, that's the consumer society talking. Oh, my son is going to Harvard. Isn't that wonderful? Well, what's he going to do? <laughs> you know, I have a habit of interrogating people about things, you know. Go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I'm still trying to get my mind wrapped around Cameron getting his hat. Theresa May hit, uh, coming in. There was something about that, PJ, that, that smacked that, uh, you know, Cameron getting his hat and getting out of town. It seemed to me like that was pre-planned. Uh, no, uh, uh, no, maybe it looked here, but one of the great things about that night watching the vote, I remember I phoned into like a various program to catch someone in our van and give them the, the news. 4.20 a.m., David Dimbleby, you know, the famous anchorman, called out, the result is in and we're out. <laughs> 4.20, by 8.20 a.m., Cameron was out with the podium on Downing Street, a beautiful sunny morning, you saw it, I think, mm -hmm. saying that he resigned, he wasn't a man to carry things forward. Like he had been rejected. So four hours. We got rid of a prime minister in four hours. Not bad, actually. So, <laughs> the reason he, that so he he now. Uh, so he felt bad because he wasn't able to do what he felt was right for England. And a mere four hours later, he grabs his hat and gets out of town. Yeah. yeah well, he agrees to resign within two months. But uh, from four twenty a.m., I was looking at every detail of it. And in four hours, we had hammered a prime minister, which is a, a fairly healthy, 
use that word dem- democracy when you can do that. So he, he, he had to go, otherwise he would have been devoured by the press. And when the British press go after you, uh, they keep it up for a month, you're gone. If they've ever gone after a minister and lay into him nonstop, he goes, that's the way it works here. I don't know. When, <laughs> when, when Tony Blair left, it, there was, <laughs> no, no there, were, there were endless months of uh, chopping up Tony Blair. But in that respect, Cameron quits, and I've seen very little on it. And he's gone. Theresa May's in. She didn't strike me as being, um, how should I say, with the with the problems. Not a she's not a leader, and she doesn't strike me as a type of person that's strong-willed and mm-hmm. just seemed like an odd fit. Yeah. She uh, she spook. I can't describe her as a spook. She's spooky, and she she has bad judgment, and she has a, a, an aspect of going into the bunker and then appearing out for a speech and re- returning to the bunker. Like she doesn't like being in the public eye. She was home <laughs> second for seven years. Why does she want the job? But the other candidates were so crap. That's the reason. And by the way, they're, they're, they've nobody in reserve now. If they get rid of her, that's why they're trapped. Boris Johnson has a mouth on him that he can't keep anything secret. David Davis is not a negotiator. He's an appeaser. And one thing about these whole negotiations, I'm the only one I think have put this up on a few things, all right. Uh, what they should have done, there's fantastic multinational companies, Rolls-Royce and British BOCL, they're built of submarines, who are negotiating contacts around the world for generations. They should have brought in business people to be the negotiators, even if they had to put them in as temporary ministers in government through the House of Lords. Uh, they're all civil servants and politicians doing this negotiation, and they weren't prepared for it. And then she weakens herself by calling the election, and the European Union are laying into them left, right, and center. It's, it's shocking. It's truly shocking. It is, that is, it is truly amazing. I mean, look, worldwide, people are, people are making their sentiments known. They're agreeing that there are problems. They're centering on what some of the problems are, and they're, as I said, in agreement with it. But none of this seems to be doing any good. The people in Britain, and I, I was shocked last June when they announced that, yeah, looks like we're going to be leaving the European Union. And then simultaneously we hear other European countries going, yes, we're leaving as well. And nothing has changed. Brexit is being stalled and stymied. They want Britain to remain in the EU. And I'm sitting here and I'm watching this and I'm going, you know what? It doesn't matter what the people want. It's the insiders, the riggers of it all. They seem to believe that they're going to get what they want. Uh, Public opinion or demand be damned. Oh, yeah, there is that there, too. But uh, I think it will go through. But these negotiations are torturous, and there is an awful lot of treaties to dismantle. You can't just cross them off overnight. They have to be dismantled. And uh, they've got certain things through the House of Commons. But the other night during the week there, they were going through the Brexit bill, which had been agreed in principle on, and the amendment got in, and because of the chief whips that, again, Theresa May appointed, she lost Calvin Williamson, who is now Minister of Defence, and he was a very good chief whip, they lost it by four votes. They should not have lost that vote. And uh, that was just incompetence on the day, and I, I mean, it's disgraceful. But uh, the other thing, the Irish border issue has been aired up as a massive problem. It's now semi-resolved. You know, the border between Northern Ireland, Southern Ireland, Northern Ireland is in Britain, the Irish Republic is the Republic of Ireland, a real republic independent, but it's part of, it's in the euro currency, Northern Ireland's in sterling. Which, north or south? Northern Ireland is part of Britain. Okay. 
North Ireland is part of it. The six okay. counties in the north, 26 south uh, is Ireland as such, the Republic of Ireland. And that's what that conflict is now resolved as such. But what, what, what they wanted was, quite rightly, both Britain and the Northern Ireland parties, unionists and nationalists, and in Ireland, the new guy, Leo Varadkar, they wanted to continue with the free travel area and the borderless. It's an invisible border. It's not a physical border between the two. <laughs> There's two total political regimes and tax regimes north-south. And they fought a mighty battle. And at one stage, Varadkar said he was going to use the veto with the 27 other countries who backed him. Britain was the 28th. Uh, and he threatened to veto Britain. So that got quite nasty there for a week or so, and now it's been supposedly agreed in principle that that is resolved. So what has what has happened with the uh, with the Irish over there? I, I mean, well, the Irish, the Irish are so pro the my fellow countrymen are so pro the EU. I've fallen out with most of my friends there over the last years. Uh, I mean, they, because they got so much money from the European Union for regional development over thirty years, they think it's Santa Claus. I mean, I, 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 there was this, it's not for love of Ireland they're getting the money. There's a price to be paid, obviously, for getting money. And, I mean, you have to toe the line later on. And the European Union now is talking about head-on collision, i say later on in the article I sent you, uh, with NATO to set up a European army. I mean, these clowns couldn't even uh, take part properly in, uh, in NATO or the, Europe, or the, uh, the United Nations. Uh, and France has been trying to undermine NATO since day one. And uh, I don't think this, um, uh, what do you call him, the French guy, um, Macron, is any better. Yeah. But this new young guy, he's a very smart guy. He's a medical doctor, Leo Varadkar. He's only 38 years old, took over from Andy Kenny. Um, in a bizarre coalition of five or four or five parties on independence, I take it too long to explain it now. And he's the son, he's half Indian, half Irish, by the way. He's, he's mulatto. <laughs> and he's also gay. Wow. <laughs> There, so there's, there's, I, there's Ireland in 2017. Let's all, let's all celebrate <laughs> and have some good uh, Irish whiskey. Yeah. And, well, yeah, which, and Guinness and Irish whiskey, yeah. And which voted for gay marriage a year ago. I nearly fell off the chair here. I've lived in four countries that have been around, but I could not believe uh, abortion is still illegal there, totally and absolutely. Although they're trying to amend that now. But uh, uh, they voted for gay marriage and the gay prime minister. He's not overtly gay, looking, etc. Well, he's a very sharp guy, he's very smart. Whoa. And uh, he's a massive tactician. Uh, but uh, that's going on as well. So it's quite a, quite a circus to watch, uh, the whole thing. But I say later on in that thing I sent you that there are 12 looming, steam, simmering crises in the European Union. And by the way, they trotted out Merkel today. She hadn't appeared for weeks. She's in, buried in the bunker in, <laughs> I don't say it, bunker, bunker in Berlin, trying to negotiate a government. <laughs> well, and and, and, uh, and and on the issue of Merkel, my God in heaven, she's done enough to Germany. Well, I, I am surprised that the masses are not parading around uh, Berlin with their head on a stick. Well, the result is, is as I say further on, for Germany is now an unstable political country. She might do a deal with this very nasty guy. You saw him in that, remember that uh, second documentary, you, and you were very ill at the time, which I asked you to watch it again. Um, Katy Adler's BBC documentary called After Brexit, The Battle for Europe, and the guy with the, the beard, um, uh, Martin Schulz, oh, oh, a piece of work, <laughs> he is a hardcore socialist pro-EU. He said initially after the election he went after Merkel, uh, both of them got about a third each, 33%, 32%, and then the four or three other parties. Nobody would coalesce with her. And the uh, t- alternative for Germany, the new Conservative Party, anti-EU, Germany got 93 seats out of 705, which is pretty good. 
were first shot that they won't coalesce with her. But it's looking bad. I, I think they might have to go for another election in, in Germany, which is shock, which means Germany is now an unstable country. And that's not good. I don't want it to be. We need Germany to have a stable government. But, uh, <laughs> Germany has not been stable since World War One. I know <laughs> well, it has been. No, well, I, what, uh, well, NATO was based there, you see. The Americans, yeah. the British, and the Germans troops were together. The German troops couldn't leave their barracks there for 30 years without permission of NATO because of World War II. You know, the Marshall... Uh, oh, the Marshall the Plan. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, you've been there, you know that. But I, I named the 12 crises in Europe, and uh, for probably, well, we have more, a little bit more time. Um, uh, Brexit is a crisis for them as such, and they can't give too much way because you just point the finger at the other countries. You stay in the EU, and Britain won't get favourable treatment here. You know, this is going on as well, this demeanour. And Greece, Italy, Spain, and Portugal should have been out of the euro 10 years ago, right? Got an echo there. Hello? Yeah, no, we're, we're, we're connected. I can hear a background, and I hear myself back. And then the Catalonian crisis, which hasn't exploded yet. It will. And uh, if, if they had had a EU army, thankfully they hadn't at this point, because it was going to be formed as a different thing five years, ten years ago, called the Rapid Reaction Force which would have been sent in to put down uprisings, right? So uh, that, that Catalonians are uh, taking a hell of a risk. What they should do in Catalonia, I'm okay, speeding myself now, uh, they should go on a tax strike and, until Spain leaves the euro. The basis of the problems in Catalonia is, France, is Spain being in the euro. It's too strong a currency. And I have to correct people who begin to talk about this. The euro was never a weak currency. It's quite a stable, strong currency. It's too strong for the Latino countries. And it's putting them into bankruptcy. And you can't have one standard interest rate on 26 countries. It's a joke. That's what the euro rules are. But that's number four crisis. Number five, uh, you saw that guy, uh, Pepe Grillo and the rest of them. There's a new political party in France, and they're finally getting to their general election. And it's going to be a pressure cooker explosion. First thing Italy will do with a radical new government in next May, I think it is, they will exit the euro. But there'll be a father and mother of a row. You've got the IMF. The uh, ECB, the European Central Bank, and the World Bank threatening them not to do it. Well, I mean, and 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 the the blackmail comes in of the, because of the debt of Italy. You know that oh, yeah. the, these countries. I don't care if it's Italy. I don't care if it's Spain, Portugal, Greece, whatever. They're all upside down in debt, and the lifelines were extended to these countries. And the ultimate threat is that uh, you want separation. We're going to send the big bag, bad bankers after you. We just cut off the money supply. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the uh, the other one is Victor Orban, one great man standing up against them. You've probably seen him in that documentary. In Hungary, he's re put a steel fence around his border and put his troops on it. And he said, F off, you would like to the European Union. That's the way we're running it. Wow. And he's cut immigration, em- illegal immigration by 99%. Okay, hold on. I got to gotta take this break. Uh, PJ, the okay. Barton Report with PJ Barton. 9 p.m. to 12 a.m. Saturday night, folks. That's right. We'll take the break. We'll be right back with PJ. Hey there. Are you going to wait till the cows come home to get your new ease-off drop and lift? What in the world is an ease-off drop and lift? 
Our Ease Off is a new tool to increase production for your meat processing company that will get that whole hog or half a beef on or off your rail with our remote control. That sounds great, but can I afford it? Sure, and the Ease Off installs fast. The effortless operation will reduce fatigue, speed up your line, and increase profits. Okay, I'm convinced. Where can I get my Ease Off? Go to easeoff.com. That's E-A-Z-E-O-F-F.com. And hurry because we're offering free shipping for a limited time. Easeoff.com. We make pigs fly. Cows too. Ease off LLC four one seven nine three two six four one nine. I'm so excited to have you as part of the Wild Pastures family, and we look forward to bringing you the pastures meats that you and your family will love. Now we started Wild Pastures because so many of my clients would tell me they just couldn't find high quality pasture-raised meats. And even when they did, it was so expensive that they couldn't afford to eat it regularly. Now I'm not talking about the bottom of the barrel healthy meats that have claims like natural or free range or even cage-free, terms that were actually created by the industrial food industry to make us feel all warm and fuzzy about buying their low quality products. I'm talking about truly nourishing pasture-raised meats, the kind that you'll never really find in a grocery store. Our farmers are doing things beyond organic. Our beef is 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and raised on pastures free from chemicals and other pesticides. Our chickens are 100% pasture-raised where they get their natural diet of grass and forage and insects. We will never settle for free range, which is actually one of the most deceptive terms the chicken industry. In fact, less than 0.1% of the chicken consumed in the United States is truly pasture raised in the way that ours is. And our pork is 100% pasture raised as well. So if you care about where your food comes from, then you have definitely made it to the right place. As a Wild Pastures member, you'll be supporting the most highly principled farmers in America and getting the most nutrient-dense, nourishing, and sustainable meats in the world. I'm confident you'll love being part of our mission at Wild Pastures, and you will really love the delicious, nourishing meats that we're going to deliver straight to your door. Visit republicbroadcasting.org and click the Wild Pastures banner ad. Secure a shipment today. Beef, poultry, and pork. Raised the way nature intended. Calling Britain, come in Britain. <laughs> We're still here, ready to eat. Uh, able to eat and have shelter and heat, just about. <laughs> but, uh, I just talk about these four, these twelve crises in in the European Union. Just quick to Brexit, the Greece, Italy, and those leaving the euro who need to. The Catalonian crisis, the Italian general election, which is going to be an explosion. The currency war, the ECB and the IMF. Number five, number six, Orban and Hungary. And seven, a lie on you. Okay, hold, hold, let's slow down, slow down. We don't, we don't, I, I, yeah, I, I'm just reviewing what I've already said. I've already said on these. Yeah. But the I, seventh one is four European countries have formed an alliance within the European Union, and they are Hungary, Poland, the Czech Republic, and Slovakia, uh, led by Viktor Orban, really. And they are fighting the European Union for to be changed completely, or they'll possibly leave. So that's on the current. No, I, 
<laughs> okay. Well, what's <laughs> you know? There's always a trigger point in seminal moments in histories of countries. Well, what 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 are Hungary, Poland, and Czech Republic and Slovakia? What are they waiting for? Well, no, no, well, it's, it's a major thing to leave. It really is. But the, the row is over immigration, the mass invasion of immigration. That's the big thing that's really teed them off, right? And uh, But ultimately, they're very clever people, the Czechs, the, uh, the Slovaks, and um, and the Hungarians. Uh, the Poles have an affliction, it's a terrible affliction, that they think, you know, psychologically they're almost treating Russia that Stalin is in the Soviet, running the Soviet Union. I know they were brutally abused by Stalin, but Russian, modern Russia is a very progressive country and uh, very conservative, very stable. But um, the um, that's happening, so that's a, a ticking time bomb as well. And another one I mentioned, number nine, is the uh, the no-go areas of Brussels and Paris. Uh, they are now serious; these um, aggressive Muslims who won't integrate into society, and they let far too much of them in. And and and, and, and let me stop you right there because here's the problem that I see: they're attempting to do the same thing, and they've been partially successful in this country. We call it the balkanization of the multiculturalism. That's how you bust up countries; yep. you turn it into a, literally a tower of Babel. Uh, traditions and all that other stuff of the home country, they're winning away by the people that are demanding that come to your country, demanding a different way of doing things. And and I'm looking at Germany. I'm, I'm looking, these countries over there are not happy. They've got the European Union telling them that we've got refugees and you've got to take X number of these people. I mean, that's clue number one. There's your sovereignty gone. You're doing, they're doing something to you that you know is going to be disastrous, but yet they're still coming. Yeah. Well, the problem with Germany, I can't believe the German people are taking this line down. They're uh, objecting to a point, but it's gone past the point where they should be seriously uh, putting in radical enough radical politicians to change the situation, and they still have this guilt about World War II and that they, to be conservative or to be right-wing is so dangerous. Well, I mean, uh, Germany has already had a taste of this. It was, it was called East Germany. And it yep. went on long enough that one complete generation went into history. And so they decided to tear down the wall. And that was, oh, Ronald Reagan, he got a charge out of that. Mr. Gorbachev, bring down this wall. And what was left there, yeah, there were some, there are still few relatives alive uh, in East Germany. But the majority of it was communism. So they took the wall down and said, come on in with open arms. Welcome back, Germany. Yep. And it wasn't and Germany we'll anymore. And we'll dilute Germany down to a semi, semi-socialist state as well. You know, that, that's, and that's they'll give you a clown like Merkel. Absolutely. And their EU are talking about forming their own army in direct collision with NATO. I mean, that's just a joke. And they want to enforce the remaining eight countries that are not in the euro into the euro when Britain leaves. All right, hold, hold, hold on a second. got a top-of-the-hour break. Stick with me a little bit into the second hour. Sure, yeah. Of the National Intel Report, I'm your host, John Statman. We've got P.J. Barton online. What time is it over there in Wales? Going up, uh, what are you, 1 a.m. now? 1 (laughs) a.m. We'll be right back. Are you one of the millions of people who feel like there is a dark cloud hanging over their heads whenever they're using pharmaceutical drugs? For some, the short-term relief can turn into an opioid addiction nightmare. 
Have you ever wondered why CBD oil is a billion-dollar industry? It's because it works better than opioids and is actually healthy for you. However, CBD oil is stripped of all other helpful compounds found in the hemp plant. According to neuroscientists, the whole hemp plant, otherwise known as hemp paste, is even more effective than the chemically processed CBD oil. Are you ready to take back your health? You can try hemp paste for the price of a cup of coffee. Hemppaste.com slash RBN. Free shipping on orders over $50. See the banners for Hemp Paste at republicbroadcasting.org and visit hemppaste.com slash RBN. This is RBN, the Republic Broadcasting Network.